Welcome to the APM podcast. APM is the chartered body for the project profession. Hi, I'm Emma DeVita, the editor of Project, APM's quarterly journal. In this, our crisis talk season of podcasts, I'm asking project professionals to share their stories of managing, adapting and pivoting their projects as the world is turned upside down around them. Thanks for joining me. In this episode, we'll be meeting Paul Hilton, Programme Director at Global Engineering Management and Development Company, Mott McDonald, who lives in Singapore and oversees the delivery of 13 Future Cities projects across nine cities in six countries in Southeast Asia. The programme aims to promote inclusive and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment and decent work for all. It prioritises the needs of girls, women and the most excluded people in these communities and it's also aligned to the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Paul began work on the programme when it kicked off in 2019 and has carried on leading it through the COVID-19 crisis while Singapore has been in lockdown and his local teams in the Philippines, Myanmar, Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand and Indonesia have been contending with the pandemic. The 13 projects range from a smart ticketing transport system in Ho Chi Minh City to an earthquake and tsunami warning system in Surabaya. Paul tells me about the challenges of managing the programme as the world heads towards a new normal and how being an expat has made him more resilient to the trials of the crisis. I spoke to Paul from his apartment in Singapore in the middle of June. Paul's office is reopening to some employees as the lockdown has cautiously eased there. We pick up the conversation when he explains what the Future Cities programme is all about and how he and his programme management office is choosing to run this extremely varied and geographically dispersed group of projects. Welcome Paul. Um, I think it would be useful for us to begin with you giving us an outline of the hugely complex programme that you're managing and an overview of your responsibilities. Thank you, Emma. Yeah, so it, it's a, a challenging program, um, and, and, and rightly so noted in, in its complexity. It's uh, based over in uh, Southeast Asia, which and ranging from the south in Indonesia up to the north in Myanmar. So we cover six countries um, with thirteen projects spread across them. Some countries having one, some countries having three projects. Um, it's a a program that's anchored with the uh, the client's aspirations around development aid and you know a- aiding vulnerable people, um, you know enhancing gender access, um, and but it, equally it's rooted in the delivery of what we might sort of see as hard infrastructure or policy type outputs, so products that that create that enabling component. I think it would be interesting to find out about how each project is managed because I think you you termed it a matrix. Um, So you have the PMO in Singapore where you're based and then you have the country teams. Could you perhaps give us an example of one project and how it's set up? So maybe I'll start actually with the the overall programme team and and the structure there. So we we have, uh, you're right, this this PMO in Singapore, which we've, we've Worked quite hard to make sure it's as lean as possible. Um, so I sit as the program director. I have a program manager and some basic controls functions around me. But really, we are sort of at the uh, trying to facilitate sort of the purest view of the PMO, which is really sort of a communication channel, a little bit of control, but really empowering down into the projects. So the project teams in, in thirteen times over are the heart of 
part of the delivery and then sort of um, you know, calling a phrase where the sort of the rubber hits the road. So in the structuring of those, we've then this this program, as, as mentioned before, is a this this sort of aid program combined with infrastructure products, and and that's that's created a sort of unique uh, dynamic, which is um, not is unusual in the topic areas. So in in social infrastructure like healthcare and education, often there are are development aid people who deliver hospitals or or school facilities, but it's not very often that there are people with the skills to deliver. Um, you know, transport planning or digital solutions to, uh, you know, a flood flooding system, um, who also work at, in, and have a deep and rich understanding of social context and of um, you know perhaps the sustainable development goals from the UN, etc. So, you know, we had to recognise that the the workforce in in both the regional labour market but the global labour market only has people with the skills they have. From their backgrounds and experience they've produced, so so we, we went down a route of structuring out the, the the countries and the teams to have a country manager who was um, very much an upward looking individual. They'd come from an an overseas development aid um, background, uh, you know, often working for uh, DFID or United Nations or one of the other multilaterals or aid organisations. Individuals who who follow different types of programs around the world um, and often lead and deliver them um, and I guess their key skill is that they understand how government works they understand how change happens and that, that's a key thing and how change happens in inside the um, both the, what we call in the in the program the stakeholders which is the sort of recipient agency and also the client for us which is um, the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office so, so they they are able to do that sort of translation process between project managers who are delivering engineering things and what benefits and outcomes those things can achieve and how that can be sort of up-explained against the context of the clients um, expects around you know de delivering outcomes as opposed to a lot of stuff. And I think that this is born out of a, a real view that they don't want things to just be sitting. You know, documents to be sitting on the shelf. They want to see the effects of change. So these country managers were selected because they understand how to affect change um, and and tweak the projects. And then the sort of second side of that coin. So they're facing upwards and they're, they are steering the project teams, but they're also that translation process. And then facing downwards, we have the 13 project managers who are there to do much more functional project management roles. So they are there to grind out the deliverables, make the teams operate, get to the, you know, on program, on budgets, manage change, risk, etc. So that's the dynamic we've set up in the teams and um, which it helps address this this imbalance of, of skill set in the market. So the, the project managers in each country, those 13, are they locals from each of those countries? So, so it's a mixture. It's it's a variation, and the variation threads mostly around the skill sets required, um, the and the abundance of those skill sets in the location. Also, around the ability to um, provide an international best practice perspective, and um, also around a, a a need for either cultural uh, alignment or language alignment. I was interested in what you said earlier about the PMO 
it, it, it's kind of a step back and you're empowering each project team to take control and run things. Is, is that right? What's your actual involvement daily on this? I, I guess pre-crisis, um, how on earth do you go about uh, keeping an overview of all of this? How much travel did you have to do? No, so it's absolutely. So, so it's it's a, a governance balance around ensuring that the right foundations are both in place but stay in place. So, so when we started, for example, we wanted to structure out the uh, project teams, and there will be differences country by country. But the project teams we needed to get in place that country manager looking up, the project manager looking down, and also an assistant project manager who would have project controls knowledge, and and that's a they're they're actually a very important component of the team because. Our PMO is small in the hub, but actually these assistant project managers are are at the end of the sort of um, at the at the end of the, the, the spoke as such, and they are um, and they're making sure that there is rigor in project controls and best. I mean, I'm I'm a you know long term member of the Association of Project Management, and you know having best practice controls is very useful. And we wouldn't have expected either the country manager or perhaps the technical project manager to have those experiences. So the third leg is those assistant project managers. Once you've set that up and you've set governance up and, you know, we've set up the rules in a unified manner in the centre. So in the initiating phases of the programme, that, that was what it, how it worked, which was um, probably in the first sort of three or four months of the programme. And we're now at sort of month eight or nine. There's also a lot of travelling around and getting people mobilized, getting people warmed up, setting the scene for them, getting them on a consistent message of delivery, understanding how risk is to be handled, how things should be escalated, um, etc. So so the PMO acts and my, my role acts very much as sort of a harmonizing process of and continuous teaching process actually around expectations and um, you know probably troubleshooting. A lot of my role is um, quite fluid in delivery now around so i have a, I have a really sh- solid pmo team and there's a strong risk manager across the program and and she she sort of takes an overview of, of each of the projects and there's a program manager as well and i said it's a program director so the three of us spend most of our time dipping in and out of issues in the projects as opposed to trying to understand everything in every circumstance in every situation um and that does sometimes create a situation where, you know, I, I could easily be challenged to a question of, well, do I really know what's going on? And I think this very simple answer is no different to a, you know, the, the managing director of a business. Well, in the detail, no, I don't know what's going on, but I have confidence in the structures we've put in place. I have confidence in the people delivering to those structures and I test and poke the machine regularly to, um, to get a feeling around how it's working. And, and also, you know, with the, the client has a network of people in um, in these countries and I make contact with them and I ask, you know, I, I, there's nearly a customer satisfaction process of discussing with them how they're going on because they'll feed back if they're not satisfied or if they think there's tweaks required. And then it's about addressing them, the, the issues as they come along as opposed to trying to get across, you know, thousands of emails and, um, you know, documents and etc. We've got an insight into the complexity of this and the way that it's being directed and managed. Um, key to this sounds like communication, good, good, strong and kind of honest communication. I'd like to ask you um, how the crisis has impacted on the programme and also how you work 
Um, you started the projects just before Christmas, is that right? Yeah, it was in, in October last year. So, How have things been this year? So it, it, it's been turned on its head, there's, there's no doubt. I started the year with, um, you know, a couple of days in, sounding very glamorous, a couple of days in Bangkok, and then I spent um, about a week in the Philippines and another week in Vietnam. And um, since that, which all sounds very interesting and lovely, but that was all, that, and that was January, and I've not travelled since and, and uh, sort of landlocked in, in, in Singapore. So the... I mean, on the communications front, the, the the first thing that's been very interesting is the um, most. Of, so we're we're a partnership. Um, we're we're the lead as as Mott McDonald of um, the commission, and about half of the input comes from a supply chain, and they're all con a mixture of consultants, some universities, and sort of specialists regional specialists but mostly consultants and most of the consultants were well set up for a remote working style but equally most of the authorities were incredibly poorly set up um you know from having desktop computers to having perhaps not even um you know simple telephone or ha having you know analog telephone systems it's been interesting to see the you know the very very fast move and change around of those organizations as they have you know week one basically they all vanished and by probably week five or six they're out now often on um you know digital tools that can share video can share screens can share voice um so they've evolved very quickly but at the beginning i think we felt that we were looking into a, a bit of a black hole some of the countries i think the diversity of the program it can never be underestimated. So we have in the program Malaysia, which is um, by and large, you know, a developed country. Thailand, really not very far behind, you know, high speed internet in most people's houses. People often have access to a laptop. Companies will be well set up, institutions will be. And then we flow through to Myanmar, which is very much a country still using fax machines. Communication has been across the team and the delivery team has been has worked okay with with into the partners and again this comes back to very simple things like language barriers so um you know sitting in a meeting with a translator is hard in itself sitting uh on a internet video conference with a translator is not far off impossible now we've been very very lucky and fortuitous that um the timing of the program starting and and when when sort of the covid uh travel restriction came in um that actually we just about managed to get all of our country in country teams mobilized so that means that um by and large we we've been able to have people you know with a with a first language connection at least one or two people in the team if not a number of people and i think that the next couple of weeks will be you know, travel restrictions are reducing. We'll be able to travel more and see face to face. You know, accepting social distancing and things. We'll be able to probably start moving towards that in a number of locations, which will ease things. The team has 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 overcome, and I think the clients have actually, or the the city authorities have have overcome very rapidly some of these risks that might have seemed only eight weeks ago to be sort of showstoppers. How's it been with the local communities? Because um, you haven't 
it would be interesting if you could tell us about uh, one or two projects to give us an idea of what they actually entail but I, I know that you know it involves regeneration of areas and and you have teams on the ground speaking to locals dealing with local communities and I wonder how that's been going over the past few months correct correct so absolutely so so it, and, and and that's now becoming um and I, I've just come off a a discussion with the the FCO um, sort of global program manager who runs it in, in different locations, and this is a challenge globally. Uh, so we're trying to work together with other suppliers, some in Kenya, some in Turkey, doing similar sorts of programs about um, how we overcome it. And and I think so. One of our projects is just to sort of land us in an example is um, in Surabaya, which is the for those who don't know Indonesia, it's the second city in Java. Java's the most populous island in the archipelago. Um, so, so perhaps uh, those in the UK think of Birmingham to London as such. It's it's the Birmingham of Indonesia. It's a huge industrial city, and it has a very large, or it did have a very large red light district. Um, and the red light districts historically, as in Indonesia, the the tactic with um, dealing with a red light district is just to bulldoze it basically it's a, a slum and they just raise it to the ground and and in this uh this area which is probably um similar to sort of the king's cross area in size so it, it's 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 a it's a sequence of streets and alleys and and things we've got a urban transformation project which will take that community from and and using things like king's cross which was exactly the same in, in principle it was a you know a red light district and a a transit hub that was on its down that's now been transformed into a you know a fantastic regeneration project it's very similar themes of of, of taking an area sort of down on its luck and and regenerating it and, and working out how we get and and part of that is about um you know there are there are social change components to that but there are also about encouragement of um, you know, anchor tenants um, or or businesses. I think King's Cross has Google, for example. So it's about how do you how do you put bring in perhaps more uh, you know life into it that that steers it in a different direction. But also as a, as a, a social change program, you know, we, we are we're not. If you're not careful, you can you can deliver something like that. And it's not that different to the local inhabitants to bulldozing it because you just eradicate their existence from the area. And that's perhaps where King's Cross is, in all honesty. But the um, so one of our key uh, energies is about not doing that. So in, 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 in the Dolly area, there are obviously the um, there's the residents. There are previous business owners. There are um, different sorts of tenants that were involved in the the, the previous um, escapades of the area. There's also a uh, a school for the blind there that um, I think is most is really there because of um, probably the price of property. For example, it's a charity. So so we've then gone through a, a, a quite a detailed process of engaging with these stakeholders. Coming back to COVID, the original engagement was about going and meeting them, talking to them. Many of these are definitely in the camp where the Indonesian language Bahasa is the only language they speak. And our, and then this is an example where our project manager, she is um, she lives in Singapore, but she is a, an Indonesian national. So she can she can talk directly with them. But with COVID, that personal interaction cannot happen. It definitely 
is a, a, a you know it's probably at the, at the top of my um, program risk register around you know welfare of my team and the ability for them to go into what are likely to be hot spots of of both um, you know low healthcare provision, low monitoring of healthcare, and um, high risk. So we're working. Um, and it's it's really is a very live problem at the moment of about what can we do to communicate with these teams and these these stakeholders. Um, how how can we facilitate that? There's a number of different ideas. There's 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 um, and this is also in a in a in an environment where perhaps smartphone integration and sort of adoption isn't high. So it's then there's an element of having to understand the local context. So actually, perhaps if they share a smartphone. There's much more um sharing of so there might be less sharing of you know if, if you've got a standard news outlet which might be you know the bbc website and then you have a less standard but more you know social media and finding your news through through that context whereas actually in a lot of these areas they'll get their news through whatsapp and share it's like a sort of community gossip process so understanding that and understanding how you reach them is the critical bit then you can start working out the media types and styles to reach them um, and then you can work out how you can do it without actually physically meeting them. Um, and we're we're unpicking it. We're not quite there yet, so I couldn't really give you the silver bullet, but we are um, un unpicking the problem. It's very much kind of live problem solving. And I wondered what kind of mindset you need to have to deal with this um, fast moving situation where it is unprecedented. It's been an over overused term, but... Um, is it to do with how do you encourage the people on your team to have that sort of agile mindset? It's about encouragement, a little bit of sort of empowerment, but also getting people, especially engineering. And I'm an engineer, so I'm, I'm going to be a little bit harsh with them. But engineers like to get things right. They like to get things, you know, clickety click, mechanically precise. And I think that it's about being able to you know, get something mostly right or try something and accept failure. Um, and, and there's an element of having to monitor success more because I think that we are trying more prototypes. We are asking our teams to. We are asking them to be more agile. You know, we, we go into, I think, many more meetings than I'm used to on uh, more technical projects and programs where we hope that an outcome is going to be where the meeting ends up, but it, it, it simply might not because the wrong people might not attend or, um, you know, etc. So it, it, it's about, and, and obviously, again, I think probably in a week, we have as a program, 100 meetings a week. So I attend very, very few of them. Um, and, and so it's about then empowering people, talking it through with them, how did it go, exploring perhaps offline, a bit of coaching, a bit of mentoring, um, and equally cascading that coaching and mentoring through the country leads down to the project managers, down to the team, so that they can all, you know, I've got quite a strong belief that people have a lot of, you know, once you give them the empowerment, they will, um, you know, flourish most of the time. And sometimes they won't, but then it's about giving them the, the confidence that they can fail. It sounds as though the, the crisis management bit has been done now, and now it's moving towards a new normal, steadier state. What challenges does that bring? Many things can be done over um, over the communication tools, but you're you're right. I mean, just putting as simple examples of tricky things. You know, you wouldn't want to be fired 
over Skype, you wouldn't want to, um, or it's difficult to have a, uh, a contract negotiation or if you're trying to have a discussion with somebody where you need to trust, build a trust sort of framework with them, um, which you you know you might normally go down sort of I need to look at them in the white of their eyes kind of tactic. Um, you know, if if you're just like any project, if you're working a bit at risk where you know you haven't formalised change management and therefore um, you know we're saying let's get started on something, the paperwork will come later. Things like that are are more strained when you can't have that physical connection and that that um that the sort of dialogue that's that's more direct and I, I think that that is magnified then when you start moving again into different language skills um different responsibility levels i wanted to ask you what life has been like for you personally as someone leading on this program because i know now it's it's we're approaching mid-june singapore is coming out of lockdown how have you managed this uh, at a personal level i guess you've been working from home uh, but what skills have you really had to hone to get through this in one piece the most the, the main skills are are a little bit about um a bit about resilience i think that there's 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 perhaps a bit more isolation um i i i i, I, I was sort of pondering this the other day and I, I think that it, it might feel a little bit more not completely like but more like the difference between working in a large company and working for yourself where where you perhaps don't have that sounding board so regularly available um to, to help you and, and and guide you if you need it or, or just to sense check what you're doing so but i think that that's in ways it, it's connected me and my peers and 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 the program you know this program team country managers more i think that it, some i mean there have been definitely interesting uh, positives that have come out of it so whereas in in the region we were in a hold a meeting where perhaps some of us were in a room and some of us were on the end of a phone and those people on the end of the phone or or video conference system previously would have felt a little bit second class in in the level of interaction they could get out of the meeting whereas actually now we're on a uh, a level playing field and actually that means that the meetings are much more rich and valuable to people further out what's it taught you about resilience i think the expat type of um experience both in families and in friendship groups um it it, it helps you to adjust to certain things to adjust to your uncertainty to adjust to um, you know, it, it's no different to any other personal experience. Once you've done it once, it's less worrying the second time. What have been the biggest lessons you've learned since this crisis uh, started? The best lessons to learn are the obvious ones you should have known anyway, probably. But I think that you, you can't underestimate or pre-guess how other people are feeling. Um, the, stresses the stresses they're under... The that you know that and those stresses could be work related. They could be very personal related. They could be, you know, um, we've got lots of working mothers in the team who have toddlers at home. You know, so they're exhausted, whereas they perhaps weren't before. So it's it, so it's it, you know context of how people are coming into the conversation um, or how they're coming into any kind of discussion is 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 much more magnified. I think. 
Um, I'm trying to sort of respect that. Sometimes it's a bit personal. So it's about just treading a little bit more carefully um, around those things. I don't think that it's about being hypersensitive. And I think that, uh, you know, that there's a there's a way of staying professional. But I think that context has been a, a lesson to learn. And I think that um, I probably learned that lesson. I reflect on it. Perhaps I've learned it, but I reflect on it in, in many calls I have probably once a day. Would you say that the projects you've been working on, the programme has more or less stuck to expectations as you've gone through the crisis? Have you managed to keep things on track roughly? In some aspects, yes, and in some aspects, no. So when we went into the lockdown, um, immediately, I mean, most of the authorities, so most of our clients in each city are the local authorities. So they could be the local transit authority, um, they could be the local government, the local council sort of equivalent. And um, they went into of, often what they describe as sort of crisis mode. So their, their attention immediately, no matter what department they're in, diverted to other things. And they could be, um, you know, you could be talking to town planners who are suddenly expected to be social distancing monitors for the city, for example. So that, that created an immediate issue where the... Um, the people we're interacting with vanished as such. They, they, they just sort of disappeared. And um, so the impact on the program has been varying depending on, again, on, on how developed and how able the different countries are um, the and, and how, how able the political systems are to, to sort of, we were right at the beginning of the program when COVID hit. And, and in some cases, you know, we'd got the political buy-in for the projects and, and you know, we, we had our, um, agreements with local mayors etc to get going and others we were waiting on that and then they all went on pause so that's then shifted heavily and the way the teams responded is by you know targeting things that can be done um, out of sequence or out of the the planned sequence and I think this is where sort of key project management skills then come in and this is where you know having that assistant project manager who understands project controls has become a sort of a, a critical component because they've been able to then work with the project manager and the, the country manager and the clients to change the critical path and change, you know, desequence it against what's available to be done. What can we address? Um, so recognizing perhaps we can't meet a, uh, you know, the, the local transit authority and, the, and they're not responsive to emails or phone calls. Well, what can we do? Well, we can, if we've got um, to undertake a review of existing standards, for example, that's a task that can be, maybe we're planning to do that in six months time, but it could be done today. So we've managed to sort of de-risk the program in the future by pulling forward those tasks and adjusting the sequence. And I think the key thing with the, you know, by having a, an, uh, by having proper project controls and, and having it as a, a program led by project management specialists, We've been able to. We've set ourselves up with the tools at the beginning, where every pro each of these projects has a proper logic-linked program, has a proper activity build-up, and therefore can be reanalyzed, can be reshuffled, can be worked through. Um, and I think that's been a a difference of approach to for the client to a number of other people who work in the market. Uh, I think the development aid market is um, much more 
familiar with uh, you know softer tools soft you know it's about social outcome it's about betterment and and that which is all great but they aren't backed up with a sort of reinforcement of project proper project management tools that enable and and that's and so we've seen really that risk occurring and being able to ratchet through alternative mechanisms and alternative paths and 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 still be reasonably efficient i think that we've out of the 13 projects i'd like to think that after three months of covid um impacting us probably nine of them are still there or thereabouts although they've been reprogrammed their end date will there or thereabouts be at the same time how do you see the rest of the year panning out are you able to plan for different scenarios how are you approaching the the rest of 2020 for the rest rest of the year and the program lasts into uh 2022 the rest of the year will be we're we're seeing the countries coming out of isolation and so the the current task and, and and literally it's june's task is um saying well this is this this behavior is the new normal so if we take that as a view what does that look like what 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 does it look like now i think that we're um and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what that looks like but i think we are very minded and I, that many of the countries here are, i personally think are, are highly likely to go through iterations of lockdown so but we can't plan for the sort of um the unknown unknowns so um assuming that they come out of of their lockdown and that becomes regular then i think that we're it's it's about um the project teams will start getting on with things they'll start interacting with their their, their clients and stakeholders we'll, we'll get a number of the you know be it the public engagement we'll understand our technique to do that against the new set of rules and guidelines um There'll be significantly less international travel for myself. As a, um, I, I think that it, that will be a not not is not going to alleviate over the next year. And and for a number of our project managers and staff, we are dotted around, so that that's can be quite a challenge. Um, but I think that you know I, I'm I'm optimistic that um, as I say, I mean one of the biggest changes has been that the authorities themselves have rapidly become agile. Whereas they started in February without being able to answer a telephone call, they're very, very quickly caught up with that. And that, that's meant that things can move on. Now, most of what we're doing is data-driven. It's it's um, information-driven. Um, and and so and that's why I come, I come sort of a full circle to that one of the, the biggest risks is social interaction around the public, which we can't fix with data or possibly totally fixed with technology. Have you got any advice that you would pass on to other project professionals in your position? Is there anything that you wish someone had said to you before this started? I think that the things that have made us uh, the strongest and, and the most able to get through it is, is the, um, the process of empowering people and dealing, dealing with it as a, a sort of a, and, and and you know enabling people to make mistakes and feel comfortable making mistakes, which which often in a, a delivery environment is not acceptable. Often in a project management environment is um, you know project managers are sort of seen as the people with the broader shoulders to handle the kicking of taking make, making mistakes and trying to sort of stop that culture. 
Um, but I, I, I think if, if I was looking at what, what's, what could somebody have advised me beforehand, and I, I perhaps have, have, have learned the hard way. So we've had examples where um, we've perhaps not tested our people or the governments as robustly as we could about the decisions they're making. So what do I mean by that? So, so for example, we've had people who have said, I will go to, I will mobilize to that location. And actually they've been very caught out around their ability to, um, you know, find accommodation, their comfort factor in, you know, their own resilience has, has been called into question. And, and I guess the lesson learned is their own assessment beforehand was optimistic. And I think that, um, and we didn't test it very well, and we've allowed in a couple of examples, and you know, it's a program with 300 people, so we're gonna have lumps and bumps. Um, we've, we've had examples where people have been over-optimistic about their own capacity, their own you know, mental resilience, their own physical resilience, and we didn't test them well enough, and they ended up getting themselves into a bit of a mess. How could you have tested them, though? Um, I think you could have, we could have talked to... Instead of posters just taking their opinion, we could have just talked to them about it. I mean, it wouldn't be much more... It's not a, no more of a test than sort of just um, a proper discussion and a, you know, uh, if, a, if, if somebody's moving to a country and their, their partner is uh, staying over... and their family is staying in another country, you could say, well, where's your, you could, where's your, where's your wife staying? And they say, oh, another country. Are you OK with that? Yes, I'm fine. But you might want to say, well, how are you going to deal with um, who does the chores in your house normally? Who 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 does the food preparation and food uh, cooking? Um, do you do that? How, how how are you going to do that if 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 you're you know the person you rely on to do it isn't present? How's you know simple question? We could have had a dialogue. I think is the key thing, and and understood um, because in in some instances people have mobilised themselves to countries that are very different to the ones they're familiar with and um i've got unstuck quite quickly when the world has changed quite drastically um it's only sort of magnified that issue they they'd, they'd been on the optimistic end of how that country operated and how do you handle that situation when it arises because then it's too late because they've been sent there do they want to return do you find someone else or do you just let them get on with it you know you've got to start from a, a massive point of empathy and you know there's no uh it's not the time to turn the thumb screws on definitely and and sort of tell people they need to suck it up and um so we've taken really a view as 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 and and to be honest again uh, in 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 sort of positive feedback of our client they have they've also um been appreciative of you know people's mental health their welfare being quite a high priority and, and so when we do get it wrong and when those individuals have misunderstood their capabilities and capacity, and, and we we've gone through a process and we've 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 transferred them, um, you know, either either to a more populous city, um, or to you know personal circumstances have changed, and we're we're you know on the journey to repatriating them back to wherever they come from, um, and and organising a fix. And if that fix, and I think we've taken a. Um, a decision that you know there might be commercial consequences to some of those things choices and and that the, the the welfare position trumps the commercial consequences 
and it's been part of my job to you know work through those problems with the client and um, make sure that you know they're bought in and they understand uh, that when when they could perhaps take a strong commercial contract line and say you can't do that you can't remove that person you've made an obligation to us the more i talk to you the more i'm thinking that project management for you and for programs of this nature is is really a lot about people management it's completely about people management it's about getting the best out of people but but equally avoiding risks by getting the best out of people by understanding what's going on listening um, and a lot of those skills the the tools and and the harder things program management risk or sort of schedule management risk management change management they're all necessary to keep it all tidy in the background but they're not um i wouldn't say they're the 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 underlying um good stuff that's required to 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 succeed really is this something that, is this a realization that you've come to gradually over your career and that you that you've picked up just by doing the job or is it something that you've actually learned about or pursued actively through your career i've probably learned it through my career but i've i've learned it through um observing excellent mentors and peers who 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 where you can see success and failure um i think project management's quite a uh, an interesting discipline because those who are experienced often anchor back to these skills and those who are inexperienced often believe that the tools will save the day and get them through their problems and so you can quite easily reflect on where success lies um and and i think that reflecting on it is is, is, a, is a key learning process it's it's uh uh, and I, and I, I'm a personal believer that you know you, you need to be constantly fresh and constantly learning and, and refreshing yourself. And I, I, as I've mentioned before, I, I think um, I don't think skills are, I don't think leadership is a is a inherited property. It's it's a thing that you have to work on all the time, and keep reminding yourself of and and you know the techniques you use. So, um, and and a lot of those techniques are about managing perhaps your own personal mood. So, because it is a people and sort of a, an interaction skill that you're often deploying, it's about um, yeah managing how you're coming across, how your temperament is, uh, even about what your mood inside is, as such. I think these reflections are a great way to end our conversation. It's been hugely uh, interesting talking to you, and f for you to find the time uh, to give us uh, to share your story uh, about the crisis and, and now how things are moving forward. So. I'd like to thank you very much, Paul. Awesome. Thank you very much, Emma. Thanks again to Paul for joining us and to you for listening to this episode of APM's Crisis Talks podcast. Paul gave a detailed account to Project Journal in the spring 2020 issue. If you're interested in reading it and you're an APM member, please head to apm.org.uk. In the meantime, please keep an eye out for our next Crisis Talks podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by APM, the chartered body for the project profession. For more information on APM, visit apm.org.uk.